if, if you're not a note taker, don't feel pressure to take notes, but you know, it would be helpful if you did. And we're kind of going to go through this. I'm going to go through this. Um, but before I did that, I did want to explain a little bit about um, the direction that Risen Women's Ministry is taking. And it's not really a big change. We're still meeting um, every other month, uh, trading off with Iron Men's Ministry. So obviously we are meeting now on the fourth Tuesday of the month. And um, Pastor Rick, he is the pastor pastor of family and discipleship. That's right, right, Jay? Yeah, something like that, yeah. So anyway, the church, we are, we want to do a more of a discipleship focused ministry. And um, before we did a lot of great things and it was discipleship focused, but it wasn't sometimes we did like we did a jewelry swap we did you know something on friendship and we did a bunch of different things but now for this particular year we are going to study the book of Ephesians obviously we're not going to do the book of Ephesians tonight because that's like virtually impossible you can have two verses of Ephesians that you can teach from for like three weeks but so that we have six meetings this year, and our goal is to meet, um, to do one chapter each time that we meet. That's very ambitious because when you think about God's word, when you think about digging into God's word, studying God's word, um, we're going to give an overview of chapter one. And we are going to break up into small groups at the end of the message, and we are going to discuss the application part. So you'll see um, some application questions at the end. And we are going to break up in groups by community group. If you are a community group leader, do not panic. This does not mean that you have to facilitate this discussion. Uh, the Risen Women's Leadership Team, we will facilitate the discussions. If you are not in a community group, we will place you in a group tonight for, for those purposes. But we did want to maintain some level of consistency and create more opportunities for us to get together as community groups and build community, whether it's Equip Tuesday, whether it's your community group first and third, Tuesday or Thursday, or whether it's Risen Women or Iron Men's Ministry, because we want to build community and we want to build community around God's word. So we're really going to focus on digging into God's word and understanding what that looks like to study God's word and to appreciate God's word for the richness that it is, because God's word reveals himself. So, and we want to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is because we grow in our understanding of who he is. We love him more. We can love and relate to one another more. So that's kind of the vision. Um, and we are going to do an inductive Bible study. So somebody asked the question, what's an inductive Bible study? So it's just really basic. It addresses three questions. What does it say? What does it mean and how should it change me? That's what it covers. And so there is a, um, this handout was adapted from a book by Jen Wilkin called Women of the Word. It's a really good book and it talks about women studying God's word and becoming women of the word. Um, a lot of times, you know, women's devotionals stereotypically can be very fluffy. They can take a verse, often out of context, and just attribute any meaning to it. And 
it helps us to feel good and we want to feel good but we want to be women of the word we want to understand god's word especially in this day and age in our culture where anything goes you can go on instagram you can go on any social media site and find a nice quote and people can build a theology around that and that's not what we want we want to be women who are strong and sharp in god's word and that is part of our mission for Risen Women's Ministry, uh, where we want to focus on gospel truth, gospel community, and gospel service. So with that said, let's pray and get into Ephesians chapter 1. Let me pull up my Bible on my phone. I'm over 40, so I told Jay I may have to call her up here so she can read my text for me. My font is big enough, I should be okay. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. Thank you, God, for enabling us to come out tonight, Lord, for uh, allowing us to come together as women surrounding your word. Thank you, God, for our pastors and the vision that you've given them to shepherd Um, your people. Thank you, God, for an opportunity to gather together as women, um, to encourage one another in your word, to be encouraged uh, by you, to be encouraged through worship. God, we want to hear from you. God, we want to see you. So God, we pray that you will reveal yourself through your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illuminate your word for us. God, we pray that you would send forth your word so that it will not return void because you promised that it wouldn't. And we pray, God, that you would meet each of us where we need to hear from you, that you would meet each of us and how we need to see you, God. Reveal yourself to us. I ask this, oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Ephesians chapter 1, I'm just going to read through the chapter and then we'll go back. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, let me change to the ESV, I was in a different version. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." 
For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So one other thing I forgot to say, um, we're doing Ephesians 1 tonight. We don't meet again until March, where we're going to do Ephesians 2. And you might be like, that's a long time. So we do encourage you, if you want to use this guide and dig into the word on your own, if you want to get together with a friend or a group of friends, we encourage you to do that. We want to use these larger church-wide gatherings as really just the encouragement for you to just launch out and gather together, whether you want to do it by yourself or whether you want to connect with other people and dig deeper into the word. Um, so just be encouraged to do that. Sorry, so we're going to start. Paul, just to give some background, the first thing we want to do is look at what does it say? So that's the comprehension of the text. So when we approach a text, we are approaching a text not looking for ourselves, but we're looking for God. We're looking for God, how God is going to reveal himself through the text. Because God's word is like God's letter to us, the gospel fits in the whole of the 66 books of the Bible. So when we look in scripture, we are looking for a revelation of God as we read. So comprehension, what does it say? That's the first question we ask in an inductive Bible study. What did the author originally intend for the reader to notice in the passage? So underneath that, as you can see under the comprehension section, who wrote it and who's speaking? So in verse 1, the way the epistles were written, like we write a letter, dear so-and-so, and we sign it with our name. Biblically, the letter, it's, the, it's kind of the reverse where the, the person who wrote the letter, the name goes first. The greeting is first. Paul, he's the writer. He, he's the one who wrote... The Apostle Paul wrote about 13 epistles. Seven are definitely attributed to him. Uh, the other six, there's speculation as to whether he did write them or, or not. In this particular epistle, some scholars think that Paul may not have written it because it's not written in the typical Pauline style, but it's attributed to Paul. It says, the first word is Paul, <laughs> it's his name. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So just stopping there, Ephesus, um, just to give you some background on Ephesus. 
So Ephesus was like a port city. If you think of New York, if you think of Miami, um, cities where there's a lot of people coming and going, it was a, a bustling city. It was Jews there, there were Greeks there. One of the things about Ephesus is that um, Ephesus was known for its witchcraft and occultic beliefs. Like there was a great worship of the false goddess Artemis, um, also named Diana. And a lot of the economy for Ephesus was derived from the worship of this false god. So you had merchants and tradesmen, you had um, silversmiths who created shrines for Diana and they would sell them and they would make their money off of that. So you had this busy, bustling city, you had all this commerce, you had um, witchcraft, you had idolatry, you had the everyday businesses that were fueled by the idolatry that was there. It would look like just everyday life. You go to New York City, it looks like everyday life. You're not thinking about idolatry typically, but idolatry is at the root of a lot of the business and commerce that you can see in pres some present day uh, cities and societies, and that's how Ephesus was. So it was a really a hub of trade and commerce and that sort of thing. So. Paul was there during his second missionary journey as an apostle to the Gentiles. So he came to Ephesus with Aquila, who was a Jew, and his wife Priscilla, and established a church there by preaching the gospel. So they, people would gather together, they would go to synagogues, and people would share their different philosophies and that sort of thing. And Paul, who was a believer in the true God, he was sharing the gospel. He was preaching Jesus in, these, in this context. And so while he's there, he establishes a church and he leaves during his second missionary trip and he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there to develop the ministry that's there. He left, but then he came back again during his third missionary journey. And during that time, he went to the hall of Tyrannus and he shared Christ every day with Jews and Greeks. And this continued for two years. So he was there for a long time. People were being converted. They were trusting in Jesus. And as a result, a lot of them were turning away from idolatry. And it was causing the merchants who were selling their shrines and stuff to lose money. So Demetrius, if you look in Acts um, chapter 19 or 20, Demetrius, who was a coppersmith, he was mad because like, listen, he is messing up our business. So he gathered together the other merchants, and he's like, you know, we got to do something about this guy, Paul. And there was this big riot um, in the arena, and they were chanting, great is Diana, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They chanted this for two hours, the scripture says in Acts. Um, could you imagine just chanting something for two hours? Like a lot of times, you know, in the church, we can sing worship songs that could be very repetitive. I have, there's one worship song that uh, is really, really popular in the black church that people loved and used to sing. And I hated it because it was the same line over and over again. Um, I wouldn't have survived this. They were chanting for two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And then they were, you know, they were gonna tear Paul into pieces and so forth. So he had a lot of flack because he was there, he was preaching the gospel. So he left Ephesus and the church is being established, the church is growing. And so Paul sends this letter to encourage them. So 
There were a couple themes in Ephesians. Noel spoke of one of the themes about our identity in Christ. Um, but the big themes, the two big themes of Ephesians that are that Christ has reconciled creation to himself and that he, Christ has united the church, all nations in himself. Jew and Gentile have been united as one in his body. So Paul sends this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus, which we see in verse 1, and are faithful. Um, so he wasn't addressing an obvious problem. Like in 1 Corinthians, he was addressing a problem in the church. And in some of the other epistles, he was addressing a specific problem. But in this letter, he wasn't addressing a specific problem. He was just sending a, a letter to faithful believers, and he was encouraging them. So Paul, we know he's the author. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's called by the will of God. He's called according to God's sovereign will. And somewhere in here in this guide, it talks about, it asks the questions of what are some of the major themes we see? And one of the themes that we see is the reign and rule of God. And we see this even in verse one, where God in his sovereignty, he calls Paul to be an apostle. Paul didn't say, I'm gonna be an apostle. I'm changing my mind. I'm not going to throw any more um, people of the way in prison. I'm going to turn my life around. God blinded him and turned his life around, and God called him to be an apostle. Um, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So in this section, Paul breaks down our spiritual blessings. He's blessed us in Christ, and that's a running theme you're going to see in Christ, in him, through Jesus, before him, to him, in the beloved, in him, in Christ. So think about the blessings that we have are not material blessings, but it says they're spiritual blessings. And it, that word gives the connotations that they are of the spirit. They are wrought from the spirit. They are evidenced from the spirit. They are a fruit of God's spirit being given to the believer. So God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, he's blessed us in Christ. All the blessings of God are realized in Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's our future home. He's blessed us today, but then there's a fullness of blessing that we'll realize when we get to glory and are with him for eternity. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, and that's God's election of us as believers, we have free will where we choose and we say yes to Jesus, but God chose us before the foundation of the world. If you don't know who you are, you don't know why he chose you, it's because he's God and because he's sovereign, and he said, I'm going to choose you. Um, so even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, which speaks of eternity past, which speaks of how God stands outside of time, it's not something that he said, you know what, this isn't right. 
I'm missing somebody. Let me go get Nikki and add her to the kingdom. He decided before time began that there's going to be a time in 1994 where I'm going to call this young girl and I'm going to bring her into my kingdom. And that's the same thing he did for all of us. So he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why did he choose us? So we can be holy and blameless. Holy, set apart, speaking of our moral purity, and blameless, which is free of accusation. He chose us so we could be holy, so we can be set apart, and so we can be blameless before him. Free of accusation. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So verse 5, he predestined us. He decided beforehand that he was going to adopt us to bring us to himself as sons or children or heirs through Jesus Christ. How did he adopt us? Through Jesus Christ, Jesus was the mediator. Jesus was the way that we've come to be adopted as God's children. And so when we think about um, adoption, with that, when I think about I have two biological children and one adopted child, my adopted child has all the rights that my biological children have as far as an inheritance from me. If I die, if my husband dies, he gets what we get. When he got a new birth certificate, his last name was our last name. Mother and father was Nicole and Olukorade. Corey, that's his real name. He got a new identity because he was adopted. And in the same way, we have a new identity through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of whose will? God's will. And then verse 6, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. So we're saved by his grace's choice, but God's ultimate purpose is not just to have a people for himself, but it's to bring glory and praise to his name. And he brings that through the work of redemption. Um, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, in who? In the beloved, in Christ. Verse 7 continues, in who? In him, in Jesus, we have redemption, a rescue from prison or captivity or slavery. Jesus said he came to set the captives free in Isaiah 61. That was the prophecy that was given him of him. We have redemption through his blood, and his blood is symbolized through the shedding of his blood. Um, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that satisfies. Um, without the uh, shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sins, Hebrews 9.22 says. So the forgiveness of our, in him we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses. We're free from sin, but we're also free from the guilt of sin. There's no condemnation. According to the riches of his grace, we are saved by and because of grace. 
And then it says in verse 8, he lavished upon us. He lavished this grace upon us. So when you think about lavish, it's an excess. It's an, it's an abundance of grace. Um, when I think about how when, my, when I moisturize my daughter's hair, I lavish it with oil. I put an abundance of oil on her hair. Um, but God lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight. It's his wisdom and it's his insight. And by that, verse 9, it says, he made known to us the mystery of his will. What's the mystery of his will? So as I was reading and studying this, you, you see the word mystery a lot of times in scriptures. And it's like, what is this mystery? There's a lot of things that are mysterious about God in the sense that there are things that we won't know till glory. We won't understand till glory. But then there's this mystery of his will that's referenced in this chapter. And it'll be referenced again in other chapters. And it's referenced in other books um, through the New Testament. And the mystery of his will is that Christ came to unify the Jew and the Gentile in one body through the gospel. That's the mystery. Christ was the revelation of what the mystery was. It was prophesied about. He was foretold about in the Old Testament, and, he, and that mystery was revealed in the person of Christ. So he, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, again, that's a repetitive thing, his purpose, his plan, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God had a purpose and a plan in sending Jesus, and this is revealed in this passage. So I'm going to go back and look at some of uh, go look at some of the questions on the comprehension, just to review. So who wrote it? Paul. When was it written? Um, it was written around A.D. 62. So, and we talked about the historical and cultural context, Ephesus, and the, the kind of place that it was. To whom was it written? It was written to the believers in Ephesus and the surrounding community, though they were the audience. And what style was it written? Number four, it was an epistle or a letter. And epistles or letters were written to churches that were established to encourage them, to challenge some sin, um, to remind them of things that were taught. And it was... The purpose was to be circulated amongst all believers, and obviously because God's word is eternal, it was for the universal church throughout all time. Um, we talked about his intent. He wanted to encourage them um, and to continue in their faithfulness, to remind them of who they were, to remind them of their inheritance in Christ, to remind them of their call as believers, how God sovereignly saved them, how God chose and planned before the foundation of the world to save them through Christ, and how God intended through Christ's redemption to redeem uh, Jew and Gentile together into one body. So where does this fit into the whole story of the Bible, number six? Another way of saying, like, what are the major themes? We see the reign and rule of God in here. We see creation. We see redemption. We see the talk of restoration. So what does this mean? As we look at scripture, 
we want to ask, do these verses tell us anything about who God the Father, God the Son, and or God the Holy Spirit are? And in this chapter, we see the Trinity. We see God the Father. We see God the Son. And we see God the Son's relationship to the Father. We see the evidence of God the Spirit, as we'll see a little later in the verses later. But we see the Trinity, and it tells us a lot about who God the Father is, God the Son is, and God the Holy Spirit is. God the Father is sovereign. He's ruler. Um, God predestines. God ordains. Uh, God redeems through Christ. Christ sacrificed himself. Christ died. Uh, Christ's blood is the one that is what brings our redemption and our forgiveness. Um, do these verses tell us anything about what God the Father, God the Son, or the Holy Spirit had done for the world? And all throughout this, we see the gospel. We see that Jesus died for us. We see that we are called holy. We are called to be holy and blameless, that he predestined us. He adopted us as, as sons through Jesus Christ. We see the purpose of his will so that his name could be praised. We see the abundance of his grace that he lavished on us. We see that he blessed us in the beloved. We see that in Christ we have redemption. We see we have forgiveness. We see that the riches of his grace are lavished upon us with all his wisdom, all his insight, and that he revealed to us and made known the mystery of his will. So if you are taking notes, let's recap. He said, he who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we see that one of the blessings was that he chose us in him. That's in verse 4. So we were chosen. That's one of the blessings. He predestined us. He determined before time that he was going to adopt us. That's in verse 5. We were provided redemption, meaning we were rescued from captivity and slavery to sin. We were forgiven all of our trespasses. Another thing he did, he made known to us the mystery of his will, which was that Christ came to unify Jew and Gentile. So if you think back to the Old Testament and God made a covenant with Abraham and he promised that he would make him a, a, a great nation and he had his chosen people, the Jews, and you see all through the Old Testament God's relationship with the Jews, his promise to bless them if they obeyed, to curse them if they disobeyed. We saw their foibles where they constantly uh, were in sin and committing idolatry and he sent judges he sent prophets and he was merciful and kind to them when they turned and when they turned away he pronounced judgment on them and that's what you see all through the old testament but in the meantime he was promising this messiah that was to come and so in the new testament we see Jesus, and now it's not just Jew, it's also Gentile. We all get the benefit of redemption in Jesus as we trust in him, and now we are one in Christ. The mystery of his will has been revealed to us. But then if we go on to verse 11, and I talked about, you know, my son that's adopted, because he's adopted, he still, he can inherit 
all that my biological children can adopt, I mean, then, then they can inherit. So in the same way, we are co-heirs with Christ, right? The scripture says, so in him, in Christ, verse 11, I don't know how many times all you, you see throughout this, in him, in Christ. So obviously God is repeating that this is about our relationship and our benefits and our blessings just from being in Christ. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. So what's the inheritance? Our inheritance, we have been predestined, again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, to glorify his name. We have an inheritance which glorifies his name and we have an inheritance of eternity with him and all these spiritual blessings for the purpose of glorifying his name. 13, in him, in Christ again, you also, when you heard the word of truth, so Paul is addressing the church in Ephesus and he's saying, you heard the word of truth, what's the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, if you believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So now we have, see evidence of God, the Holy Spirit. So if we believed in him, we were sealed. And the word sealed, when I think of the word sealed, I think of, <laughs> I always think of a Ziploc bag where you put something in and you seal the bag. But listen, I can take my fingernail and open that bag and it's, you know, it's unsealed. But the seal we have in Christ, um, there's a Greek word, sphagizo. It's spelled S-P-H-R-A-G-I-Z-O. And it means it's, you're marked with a seal. And when you think about um, Kings sometimes in biblical times, they put their, their signet ring was a seal. It had their seal. It had the, the image of the king that symbolizes this is the seal. One of the kings in the Old Testament, he made a law, and when he put a seal on the law, you couldn't change it. You couldn't break the seal. This was his law. This is Nebuchadnezzar's law. Um, this was David's law. This was Solomon's law. The king's seal meant this was from the king. We have the seal of the king of kings. We are sealed, not only have his stamp, his image, but we also have his protection. We have security from darkness. We have a preservation by the Holy Spirit. Like we're sealed in him. The Bible talks about um, in one of the gospels that nothing can pluck us from his hand. That speaks to the eternity of our relationship. Um, our salvation cannot be lost. We are forever sealed by and in and with God's spirit. Um, so we have God's mark. And a seal is also used to confirm or authenticate. So in Ephesus, they, it's, a, it's a trade port. So people are buying and selling stuff. And so, you know, somebody sells something and has their seal on it. Oh, I got this 
uh, idol of Artemis from Demetrius the coppersmith because it has a little D on it and it symbolizes that Demetrius made this. We have God's seal on us. That means we are forever his. So in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Um, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until, until we acquire possession of it? Again, to the praise of his glory. That's the third time we see to the praise of his glory. Before it was to the praise of his glorious grace. So when you see repetitive phrases, that means something, obviously. Um, but God's glory and the glorification of his name through the work of redemption, through what he did for us, is of prime importance. Um, we're not saved just for us. We certainly benefit, obviously, but we're also saved because it brings glory to his name. Um, just going back about the being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was promised um, specifically in John 14, 16 through 17, um, I'm going to read that. So John 14, Jesus is talking about, he's talking to the disciples about going away. Um, and he's trying to give them comfort. And he's telling them, he starts off in this chapter telling them to not let their hearts be troubled. But then he goes on to say, to encourage them about the Holy Spirit. In verse 16 of John 14, he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Um, verse 20, he says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. God's Spirit being in us as we trust in him as Savior. And in verse 26, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he goes on to talk about the specific ministry of the um, Holy Spirit in a little bit more detail in chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. So God promises us the Holy Spirit. Um, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And who is the Spirit? He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So God has saved us. Jesus came. Jesus walked the earth. And when Jesus died and ascended to heaven, his believers were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 shows evidence of that. But we were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And God is here. God is here in us. And as a body, we are together in Christ. So his presence is felt in this world because of the Holy Spirit. And he's the guarantee of our inheritance. It's almost like the down payment. That's, a, that's another word for guarantee. It's like a down payment. It's a pledge that the full amount will be paid. So we, have, we, we can taste 
uh, and see that the Lord is good through the, his presence that's with us. He can manifest his presence in a, in a special and real way. Um, when we spend time with him, when we worship together and so forth, but there's going to be a day when we're going to have fullness of joy in his presence, unhindered from the flesh, unhindered from sin, unhindered from time and space and all these things, we're going to be able to experience the fullness of joy um, and acquire possession of full redemption in heaven and eternity in God's presence. For what? To the praise of his glory. Um, and so Paul makes a little shift in verse 15. So he's talking about all these spiritual blessings in Christ. So running through them again real quick. He chose us in him. He predestined us for adoption. He redeemed and forgave us. We have obtained an inheritance and we have been sealed by the spirit. Um, so he says, so for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, so he's speaking to them. He's hearing about their faith in Jesus and how they're loving towards one another. He's saying, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He's thanking the Lord for them, remembering you in my prayers, continuing to pray for them. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and this is what he's asking for of the Lord for them, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So that's one thing. He's asking the Lord to give them his wisdom. He's asking the Lord to give them revelation, which is from a word that means a disclosure of truth, more knowledge of the truth of who he is. So think about it. In this context of where they're at, there's worship of idols, and he's asking the Lord to pour on those believers that are still there in this context um, more revelation of him, his wisdom. We need that today in our culture, in our context, which really is not very different on a spiritual basis from the culture in Ephesus. So he's asking the Lord to give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their heart, which is a metaphor, the eyes of their hearts enlightened. So think about this. Um, He's asking, we see revelation, we see in verse 17, we see the word knowledge, we see the word eyes, we see the word enlightened. All of that, that's a repetitive theme. Light, eyes, revelation, um, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So he's basically asking the Lord to give them wisdom and revelation so they can really know all the things that he talked about in verses three through 14. Like I'm telling you this, I'm reminding you of this, but I'm asking God that he would help you to really know this. Because if you know this, you know whose you are and you know why you're his. So he's saying, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What else does he want them to know? What are the riches, the wealth, the abundance, the fullness of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So in verse 
11 and verse 14 is talking about the inheritance that we obtain through our redemption in him. And now he's talking about the riches, the wealth or the abundance of the fullness of God's inheritance in us. If you never thought you were worth anything, if the scripture is saying, remember the riches of his glorious inheritance in us, let that lie be dispelled now with this truth. God also gets an inheritance in having us because it's to the praise of his glorious name. We, it, this says that we are his own people. We belong to him. One of the songs that um, Noel had led us in singing, um, I am his forever. We're his inheritance. He's our inheritance. He's given us spiritual blessings, but we are his inheritance. Um, so he's praying that they would know the hope to which he has called them, everything that he addressed in verses 3 through 14, all the spiritual blessings, what are the riches, the value, the wealth, the abundance of his glorious inheritance in the saints, in us, and then, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Where do we get power from? We get power from his spirit. So he wants them to know, and God wants believers everywhere to know, the immeasurable, without measure. Immeasurable in the Greek means immeasurable. You cannot measure it the greatness of his power. So think about that. What in your life do you need to know that God is powerful and he's mighty? We need to know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. So let's stop there for a second. Verse 19 Greatness, power, working, great might. So you have greatness, great power, might, immeasurable towards us. That he worked. How did he work and show his immeasurable greatness towards us who believe? He worked it in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So when Christ was raised with all power in his hands, that same power that raised Christ from the dead is ours. We have possession of that power because we have God, the Holy Spirit, living within us. That's part of our inheritance to the praise of his glory. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Where did he seat them? He, he, say, he seated him in the heavenly places. But it's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So God has power over evil. The occult of that day, the worship of Diana in that day, God has power over that. Christ has power over that because God seated him in the heavenly places far above all that. Far above all rule, all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, on this earth, but also in the one to come. Christ 
rules over all of creation, over all time. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet. A prophecy about that was given in Psalm 8, verse 6, that I'll just read. Which says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. And you gave him, you gave him, Christ is a gift to us as head over all things to the church. And that phrase, head over all things to the church, speaks of Christ's preeminence, that Christ is Lord over all. He's the head of the church. Verse 23, which is his body, his body is the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church represents the fullness of God in all of creation. That is very encouraging, encouraging but is extremely humbling. It's extremely convicting. The fullness of him who fills all in all. And that is the end of chapter 1, our quick overview of Ephesians chapter 1. So as we look at this, as we look at the handout, interpretation, what does it mean? There's an, I, I didn't even scratch the surface of all of this. But now is application time. And in this, we break up into groups. And this is where we look at, in light of all this stuff, in light of all that the Holy Spirit has shown me, in light of all that I see about who God the Father is, who God the Son is, who God the Holy Spirit is, um, and what he's done for the world, what they have done for the world, what does this passage teach me about God? How does this aspect or these aspects of God's character change my view of myself? So we don't approach scripture and say, oh, I think this about myself, or this scripture says this about me. No, this scripture says this about God, and how does that affect how I see myself? Because I see myself through the lens of the Imago Dei as someone made in the image of God. And then, what should I do in response? And it could be different things for different people, because we're all different. And it, the Holy Spirit will kill many birds with one stone. So, we're going to break up into groups. And at the end, it really should be, in the be at the beginning, but it says study with prayer. We're asking the Holy Spirit to help us in our study and application. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to bring to remembrance everything that God said. And so the Holy Spirit will illumine his word for us if we have faith to believe. He wants to give it to us. He wants to lavish his grace upon us. He wants to reveal himself to us. We can trust that he will do that. So, let's break into groups. <laughs>